Hello and welcome to Radio Desa, your second favorite show on the RWA network. Today we are going to have a mostly or almost purely historical episode. We are going to talk about two significant battles in the early modern period that led to big and important Russian defeats in the field in the 16th and 17th century. We are going to talk about these battles because they are kind of presented as the national foundation for specific separatist um, identities on post-USSR, post-Russian Empire territory. Namely, we are going to talk about the Battle of Kanatop, which is very important for Ukrainian historiography, and also about the Battle of Orsha, which is uh, similarly important, but for Belarusian nationalists uh, who are not in power, but nevertheless strive to achieve uh, the same thing that was achieved by Ukrainian nationalists in Ukraine, namely a full-on historical revisionism that uh, turns certain historical events on their head and uh, pretends that things happened that did not really happen. So we're going to begin with the Battle of Kanatop, even though it happened uh, later than the Battle of Orsha, but uh, it gives me a chance to include some trivia on Cossacks, and uh, we're also going to generally talk a bit about historiography later. So the background of the Battle of Konatop is um, the Khmelnytsky Uprising, rebellion by Cossacks in the lands of Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which are nowadays part of uh, Ukraine. So basically the part of Ukraine that was east of the Dnieper. The Khmelnytsky Uprising was successful and uh, triggered a period of harsh decline in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and eventually led to what is known in Poland as Deluge, a series of campaigns that uh, began with the Khmelnytsky uprising and the truce of Andrusowa, and basically ended Polish dominance in Eastern Europe or in uh, Ukraine. First of all, we have to talk a bit about what Cossacks are. Cossacks are quite an important component in the political identity of modern Ukrainians. Uh, Cossacks are mentioned in the Ukrainian national anthem, and uh, there are a lot of uh, nationalist uh, volunteer units in the Ukrainian military who self-style as Cossacks and so on. Cossack host is kind of a frontier region in which uh, people settle who have certain privileges uh, like uh, the carrying of weapons and uh, low to no taxes and in return they protect the border. That's basically what the Cossack is. The Russian Cossack hosts have all different origins. Most of them are later creations who were specifically created by the state for this purpose, but some of them arose organically. Ukrainian Cossacks never really formed a host like their Russian counterparts, and as a result, they were a minority in every territory, except the really, really early Zaporozhian siege in southern Ukraine. But even there, they were outnumbered by the mid-18th century. This was because the Zaporozhian host was a military camp without women in the 17th century. And after the annexation by Russia, permanent settlements were created with peasants uh, who were placed into the territory of Ukraine. It had also two other Cossack polities. One is the Hetmanate, which is based around central Ukraine, around Kiev, 
which is where modern the modern Ukrainian state basically places the foundation of its entire national existence before 1917. It was a polity that existed for around a century, but only about 20 years of those as a more or less independent state. Uh, the Hetmanate had a core of no more than 40,000 Cossacks and hundreds of thousands of peasants that they had very dubious political authority over. And then there was a third uh, Cossack polity, namely the Svoboda Ukraine, which is what gave um, the region its name. It was um, a land that was settled by peasants and Cossacks uh, along the defensive line stretching from Sumy to Izum. These were regiments that were settled by the Russian government there, and they had much less autonomy than uh, the Zaporozhian or Hetmanate Cossacks. The Cossacks in Russia, uh, of the organic hosts who arose historically, called them city Cossacks, or tied them to specific cities and fortification, and therefore they were not free, and they never rebelled, and so on, and they were basically normal army units. They also hated the Hetmanate Cossacks, because those uh, engaged in raids against them together with Poland and were generally being uppity since the Hetmanate Cossacks uh, sought uh, to achieve politically the status of regular nobles. And Ukraine basically just uses that label because the Hetmanate Cossacks uh, rebelled against Russia in the 1660s and they fought for Poland against Russia before 1654. And that's uh, these 20 years or so are the extent of the meaning behind Ukrainian Cossack identification. Of course, the Hetmanate uh, was never as free as the Zaporozhians, even though the two united to get rid of the Poles. But that area of central Ukraine where the Hetmanate was, was always mostly peasants. And the Cossacks of Militsky just managed to kill the Polish aristocracy and uh, the Jews in the Khmelnytsky uprising, but after that and the period of turmoil, the Hetmanate Cossacks all basically either became Russian nobles or Russian soldiers and their autonomy was completely abolished in 1764. And Zaporozhians, a lot of them were moved to the Kuban region of Russia, where they became the foundation of the Kuban Cossack host, which was also uh, quite important in later wars for Russia. And the Swoboda Ukraine around Kharkov that was uh, basically what gave Ukraine its name. It was a frontier region. It was settled entirely by Russia and defended by those city Cossacks. So as you can see, all these Cossack groups were very different from one another and also extremely, uh, not extremely, but different from the ones that existed in Russia proper. But Ukrainian nationalist historiography glosses over this fact as much as possible and pretends that Cossacks are some kind of specific ethnic group and that this group is identical with uh, Ukrainians, whatever that means. This leads us to the battle I wanted to talk about, namely the Battle of Kanatop. It does occupy a prominent position in Ukrainian historiography. The former president of Ukraine, Viktor Yushchenko, said uh, once that the Battle of Kanatop is one of the biggest and most glorious victories of Ukrainian arms. And likewise, the former Minister of Culture of Ukraine, uh, Vasil Vovkun, he said that the Battle of Kanatop is a brand, a victory that should receive nationwide and worldwide recognition. So basically what modern Ukrainian historiography is trying to do is politically turn the Battle of Kanatop into some kind of uh, recognizable brand like the 
300 Spartans at Thermopylae or whatever and um, basically make it a famous marketing thing. But we are now going to take a look at what actually happened. So on July 8, 1659, a Polish Tatar army defeated the Prince of Tubitskoy at Kanatop. The Prince of Tubitskoy was supported by the Cossacks of Ataman Bispawe, and the Ukrainians considered this battle to be the foundation of the national myth. But why? So, in 1654, the Zaporozhian army was assimilated into the Russian state, and the lands of the Kievan Rus were mostly reunited. This prompted another Russian-Polish war to begin, during which Alexei Mikhailovich and uh, the hetman of the Ukrainian Cossacks Bogdan Khmelnytsky at first were quite successful at beating the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Russian troops took uh, Vilna and Pinsk, the Cossacks uh, were moving into the direction of Lvov, and seizing the moment, uh, the Swedes also mobilized their forces and declared war on the Poles. And under the threat of uh, looming, under the looming threat of a division of the lands of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the truce of Vilna was concluded between the Polish and Russia, and that was that for, for now. In the summer of 1657, Bogdan Khmelnytsky, who had led the victorious Cossack uprising against the Poles and had fought on the Russian side, he died, and the Cossacks elected Vygovsky as their new hetman. Practically nothing is known about Vygovsky's early life, which makes him, of course, an ideal candidate for the myth of a founding father. The newly made hetman held pro-Polish views, which caused a certain rejection among most of the left-bank Cossacks and Little Russians. For example, in uh, 1657, Metropolitan Michael of Kosysk expressed his attitude to the hetman in the following way. Hetman Ivan Vygovsky is loved by the Cossacks of the Dnieper, but Cossacks from this side of the Dnieper don't love him. They are afraid that he is a Pole, so they are afraid that he would make an agreement with the Poles. And yeah, they fear that he is a Pole is a very apt expression. And Vygovsky eventually betrayed the Russian throne and uh, signed the Treaty of Gadach with the Poles, which was actually a treaty of accession to the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. The Treaty of Gadach was signed in 1658, so just four years after the Piryaslav Agreement was signed, the agreement between the Cossacks of Khmelnytsky and Moscow, yeah, Vygovsky renounced that treaty and concluded his own treaty with the Poles. On paper, the Gadyach Treaty sounded uh, very nice. Uh, it included noble privileges for all Cossacks, expanded rights for the Orthodox, and a political equality of Little Russia with the other subjects of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. But that was just on paper. In reality, the Poles never sought to equalize the rights of the Little Russians, whom they considered to be bidwe. Uh, maybe you're familiar with the term bidwe. It is a, a term used in several Eastern European languages that means... Uh, basically low-class people or scum, and originally the term comes from Polish aristocrats who called their orthodox serfs this. Bydwa means cattle in Polish. So the Polish same deprived the Treaty of Gadach after of almost all positive changes, or positive for the Cossacks and the Little Russians, after which uh, Wigowski lost any semblance of political support. 
and another Cossack revolt sprang up against Vygovsky, causing a civil war in the Hetmanate. Hetman Vygovsky, as a democrat and patriot, as Ukrainian historiography considers him, makes the correct decision and transfers power to the people. No, that's actually not what happened. Getman Vygovsky, trying to protect himself from the rebelling Cossacks, swears and also fealty to the Crimean Khan Mehmet Girey to protect him from the Ukrainians. The Crimean Tatars, they suppressed the peasants and Cossack uprisings, causing uh, the so-called ruin, or in Ukrainian and Russian, ruina. A period of anarchy and war of all against all in left bank Ukraine. In the summer of 1658, Vygovsky begins to attack Russian lands, burn Russian fortresses, and allows his Tatar allies to plunder Russian cities. Vygovsky spends the whole Zaporizhian treasury accumulated by Khmelnytsky on uh, Tatar, Lithuanian, and Polish mercenaries. And the chronology of the highly illustrious Hetmans describes these events uh, in very clear terms. This Vygovsky, because of his lordship, betrayed the Russian state and gave many cities, towns and villages of Little Russia to the Horde for plunder. So, in autumn of the same year, the Bayar, the Russian noble Ramadanovsky, at the head of the Belgorod army regiment, goes to Little Russia. And Vygovsky suddenly ceases uh, to want to fight with the Russians and declares his allegiance to the Russian Tsar. But uh, already in winter of the same year, so a few months later, the woeful hetman uh, once again joins with the Tatars and the Poles and renews hostilities against Russia. And this begins the next hot phase of what the whole world called Russian-Polish War and what modern Ukrainian historians call the Russian-Ukrainian War. So Trubetskoy moved into the Getman lands and uh, started a siege of Kanatop. He was soon joined by the troops of Ramadanovsky and Bespawi, who was Hetman due to the Tsar's decree. The population of Kanatop, um, not very willing to die for Polish and Tatar looters and mercenaries, began protesting and uh, demanded the surrender of the city. But this did not happen because um, Mehmed's Crimean Tatars approached Kanatop. The Horde brought to Kanatop a very large amount of soldiers. I'm probably not going to use the numbers mentioned in the Chronicles. They are probably inflated, as usually, as is typical for this time period. But in any case, there were a lot of Tatars, Poles and mercenaries from different parts of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and uh, a certain amount of Cossack traitors. On the other side, there were Russian regiments and loyal Cossacks. But yeah, so Vygovsky's detachment attacked the army of Trubetskoy and he had to retreat. But Trubetskoy soon recovered, went on a counteroffensive and drove the Hetman Vygovsky back toward his camp. Trubetskoy continued the siege of Kanatop with the lion's share of the Russian army and sent the princes Pazharsky and Lvov after Vygovsky in the direction of Sosnovka. Pazharsky encountered on his way the Tatar uh, group of Adilgiri, broke it and began persecuting them in the southeast direction. The Tatars uh, did not withstand the attack of the noble Russian cavalry and Pazharsky wanted to finish them off. But to his misfortune, he did not send scouts forward. Suddenly he was ambushed. 
His modest detachment was surrounded by the huge army of the Khan. Tens of thousands, according to the chronicles, of Tatars rushed onto the cavalry of Pozharsky and the Cossacks of Bispawe. Arrows darkened the sun and sprinkled the Russians with death. Then followed the attack, waves and waves of Tatars crushing Pozharsky and the Cossacks. Despite their bravery, they were broken and all the soldiers were either killed or captured. Pozharsky himself was taken prisoner. According to the chronicles, when he was standing in front of the Crimean Khan, uh, Pozharsky cursed him and cursed Vygovsky and accepted uh, a noble death without trying to negotiate. A certain song about the death of Prince Simeon Pozharsky was written in honor of the prince. It includes lines such as The Tatars seized Prince Simeon Pozharsky. They took him to a high mountain. And the Tatars executed him, Prince Simeon Pozharsky. They cut off his angry head. They cut up his white body into small pieces. They scattered Pozharsky in a far clean field. They drove off on their own to the Khan of Crimea himself. So it's worth noting that the fight was perceived exclusively as a Russian-Tatar battle. And uh, there were no, God forbid, Ukrainians anywhere near it. Having learned of the fate of Pozharsky's detachment, Trubetskoy sent Ramadanovsky to the battlefield. The latter, realizing that the detachment had been destroyed, began to organize a defense on the river Kukovka. He was reinforced by the Boyars retinues and the Reitarsk regiment, and Vygovsky and his Cossacks started assaulting Ramadanovsky's position, having a threefold numerical superiority. But they did not manage to overwhelm the defenses of Ramadanovsky. The Cossacks had no desire to fight with their brothers in face and blood, and uh, most of them had been driven into Vygovsky's army by Tatar whips, so they had extremely low morale and uh, did not really want to fight. Vygovsky had to withdraw his Cossacks from the battlefield and threw the Lithuanian and German mercenaries he had hired against Ramadanovsky. But the mercenaries also failed to seize the crossing. The positions on the Kukovka fell only when the Crimean Tatars uh, struck Rabadanovsky from the rear. But still, the detachment of Rabadanovsky had survived, and the nobles uh, returned to Trubitskoy. Vygovsky's Cossacks and the Tatars then decided to attack the camp of Trubitskoy. But by that time, he had already gathered his troops into a good defensive position and uh, decisively rebuffed the Tatar-Lithuanian attack. An attempt to storm the camp had failed. Uh, the soldiers of Trubitskoy broke through the enemy lines, actually. Vygovsky himself was wounded. And the Tatars, mercenaries and Cossacks were thrown back to the positions that they had occupied before the capture of the crossing at Sosnovka. But uh, Trubitskoy realized, of course, the strategic senselessness of the situation of the siege of Kanatop and abandoned the troop and turned his troops toward Putivo. After Trubitskoy left the camp, the enemy once again tried to attack and once again was repulsed, suffering heavy losses. At this point, Trubitskoy had no cavalry left because all his riders were killed along with Pozharsky and much less artillery than Vygovsky. And he was also pursued by a huge army of the Crimean Khan. Nevertheless, the Russian infantry managed to retreat in order and kept even all their artillery guns. The Tatar attacks were repulsed. The Lithuanian mercenaries and uh, 
whoever else, Wigowski through uh, Trubetskoy uh, didn't manage to achieve uh, any great uh, victory against Trubetskoy. Yes, the loss of Pozharski's detachment was a very decisive defeat, and Kanatop was not taken in the course of the war. So obviously, this is a Russian defeat. But in general, um, the Russian army did not really... Well, of course, they noticed what happened, but it did not have any strategic impact on the war. So the achievements of Mehmed and Wigowski are fourfold. First of all, the death of Pozharski. Then the destruction of one cavalry detachment. The disruption of the siege of Kanatop. And the brutal killing of all Russian captives, because Vygovsky gave uh, all the captured Russian soldiers over to his Tatar friends, who at that point in time um, had uh, the tradition of horribly torturing and murdering everyone they captured in battle. So the Russian troops retreated, the Tatars continued joyfully looting, killing and kidnapping little Russians and selling them into slavery, and Vygovsky became a political corpse with absolutely zero popular support. While the Tatars were abusing the little Russians, the Poles continued to suck all the juices out of them. Hatred of the invaders grew into hatred for Vygovsky, and more and more Cossacks began to change sides and swear allegiance to the Moscow throne. Ataman Sirko began to attack Nagai, forcing the Crimean Khan to abandon his favorite Vygovsky, uh, Vygovsky was obviously the Crimean Khan's favorite because who else would voluntarily give over so many of his own subjects into slavery? And return to Crimea. Vygovsky never managed to take Kiev. His army was thinned, and at the Cossack parliament near Kiev, the Cossacks killed Vygovsky's men who had cooperated with the Poles. Yuri Khmelnytsky became the new hetman, Getman, and Vygovsky fled to Poland. He spent some years in Poland, but eventually he was executed by the Poles after one or another intrigue. The new hetman of uh, the Cossacks renewed the treaty with the Russian Tsar, and the Russian-Polish war ended with a Russian victory and the truce of Andrusova. The truce of Andrusova was signed in 1667 in a village not far from Smolensk. Interestingly, uh, representatives of the Cossack hetmanate were not allowed at uh, the signing of the treaty. It was basically a treaty that uh, said that there would be a truce for 13 and a half years, during which both states were supposed not to engage in military build-up. Uh, Russia secured for itself all the territories of left bank Ukraine, and uh, the city of Kiev was handed over to Russia for two years, but this was cemented a few years later. Uh, Zaporozhye was, however, for the time being recognized as a condominium with uh, rights for birds. And after what the client state of the Ottomans, the uh, Crimean Khan, had done in uh, Ukraine, both nations also agreed on the need to provide a common defense against the Ottomans. So, yeah, this is the Battle of Kanatop. So, what remains of this uh, great battle? The glorious victory of Ukrainian arms. The traitor Vygovsky, who had several times violated oaths and treaties, goes to war against the Russians, including, uh, if one follows Ukrainian historiography, the Ukrainian Cossacks of Bispawi. 
Vygovsky achieves no significant success. The only victories over the Muscali are achieved by Crimean Tatars, Poles, Lithuanians and German mercenaries. The Crimean Tatars are the main part of the Polish-Lithuanian army at Konatop, the main engine of the fighting and in principle the main beneficiary of this victory. Because they burned and plundered dozens of Russian towns and took 25,000 people into slavery. Because um, the slave trade was the main economic uh, driver of the Crimean Khanate. So if we were to stay within the categories of Ukrainian historiography, what Vygovsky did was sell uh, thousands of Ukrainians into slavery. But, of course, Vygovsky himself did not know such words as Ukraine or Ukrainians. The question is, why do Ukrainians celebrate the anniversaries of this battle so lavishly? Why does it play a key role in Ukraine's history? If uh, we are going to speak clearly on this, it is because Ukraine as a country, as a political identity, has no history. It is a fictitious country whose history was assembled from the dustbin of the history of the surrounding countries. In essence, a minor skirmish that did not change the course of the war and led only to political chaos in the so-called victorious country and the slavery of tens of thousands of subjects of that country. And this is supposed to be the foundation of the national myth for a nation of 40 million people. Such a battle would not even be enough for the national myth of a small Balkan country. Like, even the foundation of the Serbian myth, the Battle of Kosovo, is ten times more important both for the Serbs and for world history. And here tens of millions of people are raised on the Battle of Kanatop. How could this happen? Political Ukrainians, in the modern meaning of the term, appeared not too long ago and started building the national myth when the era of national myth-making was already long over. Everything is already written, everything is already divided, who, where, whom, when. There are generally accepted assessments. There is enmity, friendship, victory, betrayal. There are legends, there are big battles, uh, there are wars. And all that era of romantic nationalism in which this was composed, in which the interpretations of historical events were agreed upon, in which uh, the political tendencies of contemporaries influenced how political events, how historical events are viewed. It's already done. It was already done by the late 20th century when the Ukrainians started doing it. It's all already divided up. And this was all done without Ukrainians. So they are forced to create their national myth from that which other nations in the region did not incorporate into their national mythology. So mostly from what the Poles and the Russians reject. If you think about it, Vygovsky is an ordinary traitor. He violated a feudal oath and he was a Polish subject, a Russian traitor, a Polish warlord. The Russians were ashamed of him, the Poles killed him. And thus a Ukrainian hero was born. The birth of a nation. Ukraine is a country where people like Maziepa, the loser Cossack traitor who betrayed Peter the Great and Vygovsky, also a loser Cossack traitor, are considered national heroes, even though they belong to other nations and were only traitors and despised by their own people. Ukraine is a country where a poet like Taras Shevchenko is considered a great poet and a spiritual prophet, although he was a peripheral, third-rate phenomenon of Russian literature of the little Russian village, 
Shevchenko was beloved at the court in St. Petersburg and so on, and people found him charming. The Tsar found him charming. Mazepa and Vygotsky were of no use to the Swedes, the Poles, or the Russians. Shevchenko did not enter the pantheon of Russian literature, and that is the only way these people could end up in the pantheon of Ukrainian history and literature. So it's a bit like people trying to assemble uh, something out of the leftovers. It's like if you go to a restaurant after a lavish uh, banquet and uh, try to assemble a new dish from the leftovers in different plates. It's uh, not a very pleasant activity to do and it leads to very weird results that in the end just confuse everyone. Of course, this all depends a bit on your personal interpretation of history and uh, nationalism. So if we're talking about nationalism, there are basically two main theories of nationalism, modernism and primordialism, uh, where primordialism assumes that uh, a nation and ethnicity is something that has existed for a very long time, and nationalism is uh, <clears throat> an organic basically outgrowth of the existence of an ethnic group and modernism assumes that nationalism is a product of uh, 19th century media theory or media ecology um, you know benedict anderson imagined communities and so on but i think uh, that another approach is more apt uh, especially in this case namely ethnosymbolism mostly by john armstrong and anthony smith um, who formulated um, a theory of nationalism that is um, basically based on shared historical memories and association with specific homelands and the sense of solidarity regarding historical events, that this is um, what creates an ethnic group and also leads to nationalism. I would suggest that these historical memories and this homeland don't have to be real to create nationalism and that this is basically how Ukrainian nationalism was invented as a specific ideology with specific political goals. It is also Ukrainian nationalist historiography has changed over the decades and the Ukrainian nationalism that was formulated by people in Austria in the late 19th century would be not very recognizable to mid-20th century Ukrainian nationalists and much less so to modern ones. But uh, some stuff doesn't change and uh, what I said uh, still applies about Ukrainian history being basically a box set that is uh, built out of what neighboring nations didn't want. Another case of this is the Battle of Orsha and Belarusian nationalism. It's basically the same thing. And uh, I have taken to personally call it Kanatop syndrome because it's uh, you can actually very often see this in petty nationalism of various uh, small ethnicities um, where they basically appropriate stuff that uh, other nations did and uh, try to pretend that it was them, thereby confusing their own identity and uh, because there simply isn't a real one. So the Battle of Orsha. Uh, 150 years before the Battle of Kanatop. On September 8th, 1514, the Polish-Lithuanian army defeated the Russian army near Orsha, today in the Vitebsk Oblast in Belarus. What happened then? Who cares? And what does it mean? We're going to take a look at it.
without even touching the actual historical events, it is clear that some special situation occurred because four countries are claiming to be the victor against Russia in this battle, namely Poland, Lithuania, Belarusia and Ukraine. Belarusia considers the battle of Orsha a glorious victory of uh, Belarusian nationalism and the foundation of its nationality, roughly as the Ukrainians do with Knatop. Suffice it to say that in 1992, uh, officers of the Belarusian army took their oaths on the anniversary of this battle, although they started celebrating this anniversary back in Soviet times. So the national mythology of uh, Belarusian nationalists does not differ from the hodgepodge that the Ukrainians offer the people, namely war with the Muscovites to the bitter end. But what happened that made four separate countries believe that they have defeated Russia in this battle? It all began with Tsar Ivan III, who initiated a policy of expansion and gathering of lands. Conflicts with the Horde, the annexation of Novgorod, Tver, Kazan. The Moscow state, the backbone of the future Russian state, acquired huge territories and was not going to stop. Moscow and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, Lithuania, were natural geopolitical enemies and therefore fought each other with frightening regularity. The war during which the Battle of Orsha occurred began when Vasily III demanded that Sigismund I treat his sister better. This of course was only a formal occasion. The Moscow state set its sight on the ancient Russian city of Smolensk, while the Lithuanians in their turn concluded another treaty with the Tatars. Uh, Lithuania was obliged to pay annually 15,000 ducats to Mengli Girey on condition that he would betray his oath without any displeasure to Russia and would declare war on Russia, that is to burn and loot within its borders. A number of authors in uh, the genre of folk history Historical revisionism, uh, which is very popular in Eastern Europe and Scandinavia, uh, like to write about the Asian nature of Muscovy, seeing it as a successor to the Mongol horde, uh, who together with the Tatars oppressed the Europeans, uh, such as the Balls and the Ukrainians and whatever. And such arguments look very funny, given that it was the Polish-Lithuanian rulers who always found common ground with the Tatars although they preferred, uh, the latter preferred not to fight the Russians, but mostly to rob cities and enslave the local population. Because, as I've already mentioned, the main economic activity of the Crimean Tatars was the slave trade. While Basil Vasily III eventually concluded an alliance with Maximilian I, Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. In the spring of 1514, another Russian campaign into the territory of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania began. Moscow troops took Smolensk, Mstisławl, Grichov and Dubrovna. After the initial successes, part of the army of the Moscow prince goes in the direction of Crimea and the other part in the direction of Orsha. And here begins a certain mismaking uh, based on Polish military propaganda, um, leaflets and uh, messages of Sigismund and so on. Very clumsy and typical for its time. There are very insane numbers given about um, the combatants, namely 80,000 Russians and 30,000 Lithuanians. Well, or Belarusians or Ukrainians, it's a matter of taste, of course. It is believed that 30,000 or so Poles smashed a huge Muscovite horde, taking thousands of Muscovites prisoner and killing most of the army. This is, of course, as, uh, usually a boring and implausible nationalist myth. Information about the huge numerical superiority of the Moscow army over the Baltic army of Prince Ostrovsky, 
who is usually recorded by Ukrainians as a Ukrainian, is found only in Polish sources. Uh, the few chronicles that were preserved in Russia claim the opposite, that the main part of the Moscow army was in Smolensk and only light uh, troops were near Russia. Both variants are possible, but in any case, the number of troops is vastly exaggerated. 80,000 is uh, more than was involved in, the, for example, the Battle of Crecy, one of the major battles of the Hundred Years' War, as well as any data on the losses. Military historian Alexei Robin, author of uh, a book on the Battle of Orsha, says the following. I managed to discover in the collection of the Secret State Archive of the Prussian Cultural Heritage a spy report to the Order's commander from September 16, 1514, a week after the battle, which refers to 2,000 killed and captured Muscovites. It is known that the Order's intelligence network operated effectively in Lithuania and in Russia. According to my calculations, up to 12,000 soldiers operated on each side, and perhaps even less. I only identified the upper bound, the maximum. Losses of 2,000 men are really enormous. So, yes, this is very enormous. But, of course, uh, many of the battle chronicles are extremely exaggerated. For this reason, I also didn't cite any of the numbers for Kanatop. In any case, on August 27th, the Poles and the Lithuanians or the Belarusian or Ukrainian nationalists, began their first skirmishes with Russian troops. Moscow's army retreated slightly and stood at the Krapivna River near Orsha, and negotiations uh, began between um, Ostrovki and the Russian voivods, during which the main forces of the Polish-Lithuanian army surrounded the Muscovites, including with artillery. The main striking force of the Russian army were two large mounted detachments, which were instructed to break into the enemy's rear and strike from several sides. A chronicle from the city of Pskov tells us the following. There was a great massacre near Orsha, and the wives of the Orshans cried out and cried on the trumpets of Moscow, and they heard a great clatter and thunder between the Pskovites and Lithuania, and the boyars and princes of Rus, whose the marvelous fighters of Rus fell upon the strong Lithuanian army. And the spears of Moscow cracked, and the swords rattled against the Lithuanian hills on the field of Orsha. The Muscovite, or Russian army, was in disarray somewhat, uh, especially administrative disarray. The voivods did not coordinate their military actions among themselves and began to attack separately. The voivod Bulgakov drove his soldiers to the left flank and beat the enemy quite successfully. However, a counterattack of uh, Sverchovsky ended it. Chronicles say that everything could have turned out differently, but the voivod Chelyadim, because of a personal dispute he had with Bogakov, did not help the latter and left his troops to die. He himself, Chelyadim that is, uh, began an attack with the main forces. At first, this attack was very successful as well, but the Lithuanians eventually ambushed the detachment, uh, fired at it with artillery and defeated it in a counterattack. And now Bulgakov uh, returned the favor and did not uh, intervene to save Chaladin's detachments. In the end, both the, their detachments were defeated and scattered, and uh, Sigismund immediately began writing about it to anyone who might be interested in it. He wrote a letter to the Pope in Rome that the Muscovites he had defeated were not Christians at all, but pagans. And in different letters he gave uh, different numbers of dead and prisoners. Most historians agree uh, that these letters are not very good sources for the battle. 
was military propaganda aimed at isolating Muscovy. Like, they are weaklings, I killed them all, you should support me. It's a very common feature of military propaganda, and especially these days you have uh, probably encountered it a lot. On one hand, it was definitely a major defeat and the first real victory of the Lithuanian troops over Moscow. On the other hand, the Lithuanians and Poles did not achieve their main goal, namely the return of Smolensk. Orsha and a number of secondary fortresses were seized, the Russian troops retreated, but soon they began to attack the Grand Duchy of Lithuania again. There was a third force, however, the Tatars. Not particularly anxious to fight for Polish-Lithuanian interests, they looted everything and everyone in their past, and considerable forces on both sides were engaged precisely in defending against Tatar raids. Thereafter, the war was a slugfest, there were no important victories or defeats, and then the years of 1520 and 1521, Russian troops carried out a series of major offensives on the territory of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania and depleted the forces of the Polish-Lithuanian army. By 1521, both sides had uh, more pressing problems. The Livonian Order had attacked the Grand Duchy of Lithuania and the Crimean Tatars had attacked uh, Moscow. Eventually, an armistice was signed in 1522, which left Smolensk as a Russian city. Belarusian nationalists uh, consider this battle the foundation of Belarusian history. They consider the Grand Duchy of Lithuania a Belarusian state, and therefore the Muscovites were defeated by the Belarusians. They also believe that the national flag of Belarus was first used near Orsha. Um, you know, the white, red, white one. Not the Soviet one that uh, Belarus is using today. It's not uh, quite clear why but uh, they believed that there were no Poles and Lithuanians uh, involved in this battle and um, that these were only Belarusians. As one famous Belarusian historian said, uh, the victory in this battle is the largest in Belarusian military history. All other major victories of the Belarusians were won with the support of the armies of other states and this victory is really others. Well, in addition, the Belarusian nationalists attribute to themselves a gigantic diplomatic success, namely the destruction of the anti-Polish coalition uh, between the Holy Roman Empire, Muscovy, and the Teutonic Order. Um, yeah, so they believe that uh, because of the victory at Orsha, this coalition fell apart, which of course is also conjecture that has no real basis in reality. A month before the battle, there was a conflict between Maximilian and Vasily, and the Treaty of Alliance was not signed. But Polish diplomats sincerely believed that it was they who had prevented alliance between the Habsburgs and Moscow. Well, now it is not even the Poles who attribute this, this success to themselves, but the Belarusians, who simply did not exist during the Battle of Orsha. So, like I said, Kanatop syndrome. A part of the history of a neighboring state is taken, its imaginary successes are attributed to a non-existent community, and there it goes. The greatest victory over the Muscovites, the Belarusian army, the Belarusian flag. Such uh, tomfoolery on other people's blood is peculiar and specific to young and insignificant nations who, due to an absence of their own history, are forced to steal it from neighboring nations. In the case of the Belarusian nationalists, this takes sometimes grotesque forms.
if the Ukrainians are already in a completely hopeless situation in this respect, it is even more difficult for um, the Belarusian ones. The Ukrainians at least had relatively independent governors and rulers on approximately the territory where so-called Ukraine is nowadays located, but the Belarusian nationalists have nothing. They are forced to write down their own executioners and enslavers as national heroes, Polish and Lithuanian feudal lords as saintly national revolutionaries, etc., etc. It turns out to really like BDSM nationalism when moving away from the team of Oksha, people like uh, Kaszutsko and Kalinowski, Polish noblemen who despised the better Russian bidwe, the cattle they ruled over, uh, registered as great Belarusians, while Muravyov and Suvorov, the Russian generals who saved the Orthodox peasants of Western Russia from Polish feudal terror, uh, decried as executioners and invaders. But such is the world of petty nationalism, it doesn't have to make sense. Well, reality is not much better than their holy fantasies. The great douche of Lithuania, as many times before, bet on the Tatar cult and also lost. The, in general, the relations between uh, Lithuania and the Tatars were quite interesting. Mm. Maybe you have seen that tweet by, I don't remember if he was Latvian or Lithuanian, some Baltic politician posted about how maybe it's time to smash the Mongol horde again and take Moscow. This is part of this uh, historical revisionism and folk history in which Muscovy is some kind of Asian Mongol rump state uh, trying to oppress the pure Aryan Viking whatever Europeans in Eastern Europe. But uh, as is usually the case uh, with Eastern European petty nationalism, this is pure projection. I'm now going to quote a paragraph from a study on the origin and state of the Lithuanian Tatars by uh, historian Muklinski. The history of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania presents us at one time with an extraordinary event. When the whole of Europe was armed with the sword and hatred against Muslims, the prudent policy of the Lithuanian kings, with love and hospitality, invited the Tatars, who were compelled by various circumstances to leave their homeland and voluntarily resettled on Lithuania into their possessions. Here namely the wise prudence of the Lithuanian sovereigns endowed the Tatars with lands, patronized their face and in the course of time made them equal to the native nobles, relieving them of almost all taxes. For the era then, it was a matter of great courage and the highest, strongest mind. Here are the reasons why the great dukes of Lithuania were subjected to slander from the Livonian swordsmen, exhibiting the princes as enemies of Christianity, demanding revenge against them. The Lithuanian grand dukes did not treat the captured Tatars in the same way as other Christian states, for whom Tatars were barbarians and with whom eternal war was waged, and all efforts were made so that the hand of Christianity might tower above them. Therefore, for the Muslim prisoners there was eternal slavery. Modern historians describe Vitov's treatment of the ketchup Tatars above that age and other people's examples as humane and deeply political. By the meekness and unparalleled tolerance of the face, Vitov as if bound all the Tatars to him. The subsequent rulers were also guided by such beginnings, and the Tatars, for their part, were able to repay these favors with gratitude and loyalty to that land where they were received not as captives, but as brothers. So, leaving aside the question of how prudent this was, this is not what I want to discuss. It's uh, absolutely possible that it was a great and fantastic policy by the Lithuanians, 
but in any case um, the state of Lithuania is uh, presented or the whole intermarium or buttered belt or whatever you want to call it this whole uh, region populated by Eastern European petty nationalists considers uh, basically Muscovy as a Muslim Mongol orc horde and their own countries as uh, stalwart defenders of Christian Europe and of course if we look at uh, the real history of Lithuania and stuff like the battles of Kanatop and Orsha, it is a great question who exactly was the defender of Christian Europe, whatever that means here. The Third Rome being in friendly relations with the Holy Roman Empire or the Principality of Tatar Lithuanians. But in any case, this doesn't matter to uh, these petty nationalists. Hundreds of Ukrainian and Belarusian nationalists will tell beautiful tales about how they single-handedly defeated 10 million Muscovites. And, uh, yeah, regrettably, this will all end in great bloodshed and uh, people dying because they believe in stupid bullshit. Radio Desert out. Until next time.